Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act, juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. everybody welcome to another episode of redefining society on itsp magazine my name is marco ciappelli you should know that by now and uh, on redefining society we talk about technology and society society and technology and how one affect the other either we do it intentionally or not and uh, i'm quite excited about this conversation that we're about to have today with uh, Daniel Castro, which I will give the word in a, in a few seconds here, because uh, the, I read an article that he wrote, and uh, it's, uh, it's about, uh, well, I, I read you the title, Maybe Everything Isn't Tech's Fault. And uh, I fully agree on that, so I invited to come on the show and have an open conversation about this and to to see where he comes from with this with this opinion and why he decided to to write an article on the ITIF, which is the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, where. Daniel is Vice President and Director for the Center for Data Innovation. So enough about me. If you're watching the video, you can see Daniel is here. And for you listening the audio, I guarantee he's here. And this is his voice. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks, Marco. It's, it's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about this. I don't know. I just get excited for weird things. Uh, but, you know, that's why I talk about technology and society, because it's fascinating and sometimes, uh, you know, make you think. And I think this is this is exactly that the, the moment where you, you have to think and maybe look back and say, is this perception uh, about technology the the right one or 
is there a right one anyway? So a little bit about yourself and let's dive in into this article, uh, why you wrote it and what really inspired you to, to do that. Sure. So um, I'm Daniel Castro. As you said, I am the vice president of a think tank called the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. I've been working on tech policy for the last 15 years or so. Um, and it's been fascinating to see these debates that go on both in Washington, but also just more generally the kind of debates we have at our dinner tables over how technology is changing, how it's changing society, what it means for our children, our, our work lives, you know, our everything. And one thing that I've noticed is that the, the tone and the conversation around tech has become increasingly negative, right? It used to be that, you know, not everyone loves tech. I'm, I'm definitely a, a tech enthusiast. I'm a nerd. You know, I, I love to kind of geek out on computers and gadgets and all of that. Um, and I, I've always done that. But you know, not everyone liked it, and that was fine. Um, but there wasn't necessarily a hostility towards technology that I think is just an, an undercurrent of so many of the conversations around tech right now. And um, yeah, this, this recent article I wrote, um, I was kind of spurred to write it after I saw, you know, two headlines that were kind of dominating the news during a particular week. Um, one was about somebody's family that was suing Google um, after uh, a man drowned, um, after he, he drove off of a bridge that had been that had collapsed, um, and he was you know following Google Maps, and so you know the argument was that this was Google's fault, um, and there are a lot of headlines around that. Um, and you know, I mean, first of all, I mean, clearly it's a tragedy. I mean, some you know someone died, someone in a, you know um, he was part of a family. Um, you know that that's a tragedy, and but you know the question of well, who's at fault? You know, in all these headlines were, you know, just, you know, just, you know, focused on the question about, you know, it was Google Maps and shouldn't Google have to pay for this? And why didn't they fix this? And I'm just, you know, thinking, okay, maybe, but, you know, the average driver, you are responsible for your driving. You know, if you can't see where you're going, you shouldn't be driving. What if there was a child in front of this vehicle? What if there was a, a pet? You know, what if, if, you know, if the person can't see, if they don't know where they're going, that's their responsibility, when I took my driver's you know, exam, they didn't say, um, you know, you need to be qualified unless you're following someone else's directions. <laughs> it was you need to be qualified yourself. You need to be aware of your surroundings. And and that's the kind of thing that, you know, I just I think we we kind of have lost some common sense here about, you know, who's responsible in, in these different situations. And and you know, there's a tendency to just blame tech to begin with. And I think that's maybe not so productive. And in the way, the game is just at the beginning, because if we have issues with that kind of technology, the map has been around for a very long time. And it's an immense help, as you say, it's a tragedy. But if I read correctly on the article, it was also a private road where this happened, which makes it even a little less responsible for whomever it's taking care of fixing that. But and I'm thinking like, all right, now we're going into self-driving cars. We're already having this ethical conversation about who is responsible for the decision that the algorithm makes. It, it you know, save the, the pedestrian, save that pedestrian, save the driver, and uh, who is responsible for that, the car, the driver, or whatever it is. And, but, but this has happened already way before this. So with, with AI and, and autonomous vehicles, it's going to get even worse. Um, but you wrote an article, and I want to start from the 
a little bit more in the past, in 2017, I believe, where you were noticing that this shift in the perception and in the way, well, not perception, I say the way that they portray technology in in, in magazine and, and social media was already changing from the 80s. I mean, I'm a teenager of the 80s. So I remember when TV was the devil. You're watching too much TV. Then there is the video games. Uh, I don't even want about going to 60s with rock and roll is the devil. But, you know, the radio. <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. always been some kind of... It's just getting exponentially, uh, I don't know, worse this relationship, I guess, that we have with technology. We want it to fix everything, maybe? I don't know. And, you know, you can even go back further than that. Uh, You know, people were upset when, you know, the printing press was created. (laughs) But not only the printing press, but, you know, when, um, you know, they they started creating, you know, pulp novels. Um, You know, you had this pulp fiction and people were complaining about, oh, this... Anyone can be an author, not anyone, but, you know, more people could be authors instead of just the, you know, the, the more um, elite among society. And, and that's always, you know, been a concern. And people thought that was immoral and were concerned about, you know, who had access to spread ideas and, and knowledge. And we've certainly seen that debate play out with the Internet. Um, and you're right. The study we did back in, um, you know, about, I guess now it's been probably five or six years ago, we looked at the uh, tone of coverage around technology um, over a number of decades uh, in in the popular press, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, those types of publications. And we did see a, a remarkable shift um, over time where, you know, it used to be maybe more neutral, um, you know, covering advancements, you know, space exploration, you know, whatever mm-hmm. was going on. Um, you know, there were always critical voices, but it was much more balanced. And now, you know, you see this real shift and, you know, it was just kind of clearly documented in a kind of sentiment analysis we did of these stories where it was uh, significantly more negative. And, you know, one thing that's, you know, noticeable to me is there are these new, um, you know, we have a lot of new media, you know, new uh, publications online only that have been created, some focused exclusively on technology and innovation. And if you look at their mission statements, their mission statements aren't, cover what's happening in the world of technology or, you know, even maybe critically cover it. They're, they're specifically focused on, um, you know, power dynamics that they see, whether or not they exist on, you know, the exploitation of, of technology manipulation of consumers. You know, they're, they're coming at it from, you know, a, a preconceived view of, of what is going on here. And I mean, if you think about kind of the traditional, academic neutrality of, of, you know, academic research or just kind of the more neutral point of view. Of course, no news is completely neutral, but at least an attempt to be somewhat unbiased in the coverage, giving it a fair coverage. I think we've left that behind and it's no longer reporting on what's happening, the, the different sides of it. It's really about, you know, how technology is causing various harms because that is the, those are the headlines that get clicks and those are the headlines that sell more subscriptions. And, you know, so it's a, a little bit of this uh, unvirtuous cycle that we're, we're trapped in where, you know, the bad news sells. And so that's the, the news they're going to push. Yeah, and I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, you can apply this to about everything, right? I mean, it's it's the bad news. So they sell more than, uh, than good news. And uh, when you do something bad, everybody points it out. And when you do something good, people are just like, yeah, whatever. I don't need to leave a comment for, for that. That's what I expect you to do. So in a way, there is the entire news cycle that it definitely went on 
not being objective anymore, if ever have been, but definitely not this bad. But but let's let's focus on the the technology. I mean, with AI, you know, same thing right now. I mean, you can talk about generative AI, and there are strikes. You know, legit reason. Um, I, I'm not against that. Uh, but then the perception of all of it, it's always about how it's going to take jobs, how it's going to uh, make changes in society that they're all negative. But AI is making our life a lot better already. So why are we not talking about that? Is that an economic reason only or is it fear of the unknown? Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the um, conversation around AI right now is that, you know, this is something I've, of course, been tracking very closely. And, um, you know, the headlines of, you know, if if somebody, you know, if a company were to use AI to make a hiring decision, like Amazon, you know, had rolled out this um, AI a number of years ago, a pilot, they didn't even actually roll it out in, in practice. They had done a pilot around using AI for hiring. Um, they found that it was biased against women, um, and so they stopped the project. Um, that's actually exactly what you would want to see a company do, you know, experiment with the technology, um, you know, uh, maintain oversight to see if it was causing any problems before it went into production. And if it does, either fix those problems or stop the project. And that's exactly what they did. But instead of headlines, you know, either saying that, you know, you know, American company is correctly providing oversight of AI, the only headlines you'll ever see about that incident is, you know, Amazon employed uh, sexist hiring algorithms. And there's just this disconnect between, you know, the reality of what happened and the headlines. Um, and there's also just this disconnect between, um, you know, where there, you know, as you said, there's, there's so many benefits right now from the technology. Um, there was a great study I saw recently where, you know, scientists were using AI, generative AI specifically to, you know, explore, um, you know, some medical research and, and creating new compounds and, you know, part of what they were able, what they were doing in this specific research was trying to see if the the rate of discovery could be increased. And they were able to show that, you know, the, the work they were able to do with this generative AI model was, you know, equivalent to something like, you know, 80 to 100 uh, scientific, you know, years of research um, that otherwise, you know, it would take that, that long and if humans actually going out and trying to do the same work. Now, that's incredible opportunities, right? Like, you know, we, we've seen them use generative AI to create um, a new compound that is, you know, uh, resistant to, um, you know, the, the antibacterial resistance that can overcome that. But these are things that will have significant impacts on people's lives. Those are not the headlines, right? The headline is, you know, Tesla crashes. <laughs> yeah, because somebody decided to sleep uh, on the highway. Uh, so yeah, but but see again, it's it, I go back to often that it's it's not really a technology problem; it's a, it's a human problem. So for example, when you look at the bias, and and sure there are bias because they train this algorithm on actual fact and and thoughts and uh, and and way to live and beliefs that human have. So I like to say that AI is human after all because it's just carrying the things that we do, uh, mm -hmm. that we do in society. But all of a sudden, you just expect so much from technology. And I think that's, that's the problem. Like the, even 
to call it intelligence, it's a little too much, in my yeah. opinion, to start with. And, and you're setting the bar so high. And then when you see that this bar gets set higher and higher because all the failure that they're telling us that technology is having, you just make people live in, in fear of that and not really appreciate it. So how do we change this this uh, this vicious cycle? That yeah, you know, and I, I think, you know, there's this always this tension between, you know, the kind of optimism and pessimism people have about the future and, and then whether or not people are nostalgic about the past, you know, and whether they think it, it used to be better and, and we're somehow getting worse. Um, because I think that that shapes a lot of this. And, and that's where, you know, there's there's so many issues. Um, you know, one of the, the other incidents I wrote about in this recent article was around someone who was wrongly arrested um, and the police had used facial recognition. And, you know, there's been um, a handful of these cases over the last two years. Um, and, you know, all of them, of course, are, again, you know, uh, tragedies. I mean, someone's being arrested, they're being detained, their lives are being impacted. These aren't good things. Um, but the, again, there's this kind of myopic focus on the technology side of it. And that's where I think it's, it's misleading and harmful because in each of these cases, the issue was fundamentally about poor p police work. It was about somebody who, you know, police that, first of all, weren't following procedures because under no conditions should anyone ever be arrested uh, simply because there's some kind of match in the facial recognition system. That's clear in every, every vendor that sells this to police. That's clear in every kind of standard that's ever been put out within police departments. Um, and, and that just should never be happening. Um, but two, you know, the bigger point is there are lots of people that are wrongfully arrested in the United States every year. Um, not because of facial recognition, but because of other poor police work. And in so many cases, you know, we have this kind of, um, you know, myopic uh, focus on just the technology portion of problems that it distorts and distracts from, from bigger issues. You know, we could get facial recognition technology working perfectly. And, you know, if that's all we focus on, then we're still missing all the people who are wrongfully arrested in the United States. If we focus on, you know, addressing the potential harmful impacts on, on, you know, teenage mental health of social media, you know, we're still going to have tons of teenage mental health problems in the world um, and in our country. And so, you know, it's not that these issues aren't also important, but they're, they're prioritized at a level that doesn't reflect reality, doesn't reflect the size of the actual problems. And I think that's where, you know, it's, it's you know, we just need a, a better perception in our communities about where the problems are, because if we don't have that, we're going to push for the wrong solutions, um, and that's you know that's the only way we can we can solve some of these issues. And you know if we can reduce wrongful arrests across the country, that will also take uh, take care of the facial recognition problem. If we can address mental health in this country, that will address the social media problem. You know, in so many of these cases, you know, we're going after I think some of the wrong problems or focusing too much attention on the wrong parts of the problem. Yeah, and you mentioned in the article too that. A lot of this problem, some of those you just mentioned, or obesity, or you know, the, the, the addiction to to certain kind of technology that may bring to this problem, but they were problems that existed before too. So it's they were not born with the technology that we point the finger at. And I go back to maybe we again we expect too much from technology because we're lazy in doing other things. Like instead of 
paying attention, you'd just prefer to have that easy button that, yeah, it's just going to do everything. The Jetsons are here. I don't, I don't need to do anything anymore. And we need to be in control. We need to be still thinking that it is a tool. And the big fear, and I, I definitely want your opinion on this, is that if we don't understand technology, how are we going to regulate it? So, I mean, we've seen cases of people in Congress that honestly, they didn't really clearly know much about a conversation <laughs> with Meta or with Google or... So uh, if we don't cross that line, I think the problem is going to get worse and worse. That's right. And the good thing with, I think, some of this technology is more and more people are using it. And it's in some ways, you know, not necessarily inescapable, but it, it'll be, it's integrated into many people's lives. And so they see it. And, you know, we no longer have, you know, the members of Congress who fundamentally don't understand you know, what the internet is, you know, you can go remember, you know, Senator Ted Stevens saying, you know, it's a series of tubes. Yeah, that was this famous, you know, disconnect between a, you know, um, and, and, you know, much older uh, senator and not really understanding the technology. I think, you know, increasingly, I, you know, I, I hear, you know, not only congressional staff, but, you know, members of Congress themselves actually sitting down and, and using some of this technology. And I think that dispels some of the harms and some of the fears around it when it, you know, it's, it's fear of unknown when you don't understand the benefits of it and you don't understand, you know, the ways that you might use it or not use it. That's when I think people's um, it's, it's easier to imagine what might go wrong than what might go right. And, you know, that's where it's, it's easy to kind of get up caught up in the fears about how we need government to step in and protect us from this uncertain future. Um, because I would argue that, you know, in many of these cases, the, the biggest risk is a lack of AI adoption. And we're talking about this technology, right? The biggest risk for most people, you know, it's not that you're going to be in an unsafe vehicle. We have safety regulators for vehicles and, and they're paying a lot of attention to these issues. And I, I think they will continue to pay attention. I think the bigger risk is that we're not going to have, you know, AI deployed in radiology as quickly as we might otherwise, and that that is going to cause, you know, people to not have tumors found and, and, you know, that will have life and death consequences, but those are harder to measure, right? The, those are, you know, harder to see and, but, th but they're significant. You know, they, we think about education in our country and, and, you know, so many students that are falling behind in learning, especially after COVID and, you know, lack of funding for teachers. Well, you know, you look at what Khan Academy is doing with the, you know, you can do, use generative AI to provide personal tutoring, personal interactions with students, answer their homework questions for someone that doesn't have a, a parent or a tutor that they can go to. But these are things that could significantly impact, you know, the quality of life of, you know, millions of students in our country. But do we have any kind of national strategy from the Department of Education about how to use AI? No, we don't. They're only thinking about what are the risks to student privacy and, and some of these other things. And that's where, you know, again, we just, we just have to get them, one, to understand the benefits, but two, to actually, you know, have some, um, I think, enthusiasm for it, right? I mean, some of this has to be driven by, you know, interest. You think about the space race, you know, back in the, you know, the 60s, people were excited about that. You know, there were some people were scared about it, but a lot of people were very excited about it. And it was that enthusiasm and that vision that, you know, led to a national program in space that, that got us where we were, got us to the moon, you know, got so many, you know, technologies that we now take for granted, like GPS, which apparently is causing us to crash and, and die. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, it's kind of all come full circle. 
Yeah, I, I think that the example of the space race is is excellent. Actually, I wrote a, a newsletter not too long ago about how when we go to space, and I am lucky enough to have astronauts that I, I had conversation with, and you know the the overview effect when you go in space and you you look back and you understand how the world is, the planet is just one, everything is synergic in between. And so in a way, going to space is a way to look back into, into understanding the planet. And so I made the assumption where looking at AI, we, we never talk about ethics so much in the public conversation as we're doing now with AI. I mean, now I go back and I wish I studied philosophy, but at, at the day that I was doing is like, what are you going to be? teacher of philosophy or philosopher now you're actually in the conversation all the time because we we're kind of looking back at ourselves, and and it's a good moment to do that but following your article the only way to do it is to really understand and the, and the problem is that this article that are so you know raising the alarm for the, the coming of a new atomic bomb <laughs> ai is going to destroy us First of all, they don't even explain if it's generative AI versus general AI versus the tunnel AI, which is very good in what it does in healthcare, looking at scans and, and see things that a doctor or human can't possibly see because they they learn of this pattern. But again, I think the change needs to come with education. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we just shut the door. Like you said, we don't understand it, I, let's not use it. But that train left the station. There is not that option, and it will be a bad one. So how do we educate people? How do we change? I'm not asking you the, the, the answer. I mean, if you have it, bring it. But um, how do we break this circle where people are so... I don't want to say gullible, but they don't want to do that research. They don't want to read three articles on the same topic and then made up their mind. We we didn't train, we didn't educate people in the in the system, in the educational system to do that. It's more like this is the truth. It's on the internet. It must be true, right? I think your point about ethics is also is a great one because so many people are are talking about ethics now. And I think what uh, is taking a lot of people, especially policymakers, a long time to catch up on is that, you know, ethics, there's not one answer out there, you know, and so, you know, when they say, you know, the the solution that's being put forth often is, okay, well, you just need to, you know, we need rules to make sure you're building ethical AI. And then they think they've solved this problem. And of course, if you go and you ask the philosophers, they say, well, wait a second, there's no you know, there's no one answer to what is ethical. You know, there's so many different theories about what to do. I mean, no one, you know, people can't settle on, you know, basic questions, you know, should you lie? Well, it depends. <laughs> you know, famous, you know, philosophical questions, trolley problem, right? All these things that come up again and again. Um, and, you know, and, and they're saying, okay, but we want you to, you know, code rules, right? Hard and fast rules into um, these machines that embed ethical principles that we can't even agree upon. And, you know, I, I think that's where there, there also needs to be more recognition of the fact that, you know, we live in a messy, complicated world and there's not simple answers uh, many times. And, and, you know, so the starting point is not that, okay, there's this one right way to do things. And it's just a matter of, you know, getting everyone to march down that path. That's, I don't think, the world that we want to live in. That's a very 
you know, dark world, actually. That's more of a dystopia where we say there's only one right way to live. And so, you know, I, I think there has to be more recognition, too, of, of the fact that there are lots of different perspectives and, and diversity of thought. And we should encourage that diversity of thought and, and views in this space. Um, uh, but, you know, um, when you do that, of course, there's you get everything. And, you know, some of those maybe thoughts and ideas aren't, aren't the best. Yeah, I mean, culture and ethics is definitely the big uh, the big issue. But but people love to hear that. I mean, they they want to live in a. I mean, people, most people, they do want to live in a world that is it's black or white, it's good or bad, it's evil or it's uh, holy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to go in religion here, but yeah. the politics as well. I mean, people sometimes they want to be told. They they choose the source. And then whatever the source told them, it's a newspaper or, or a political party or religion or whatever, then that's what you, what you take. Uh, again, it's the easy button, and, and we just need to learn to be a little bit more, uh, you know, making our own mind on, on things and not be, be afraid of it. So, well, I hope that conversation like this and articles like the one that you wrote will make people think, at least don't judge before you try something. <laughs> like I know plenty of people that they say, I would never use AI. And I said, well, have you tried ChatGPT? Do you even know what you're talking about? It's like, no, right. I'm not, I'm not going to mess with that. Well, then I'm not going to take your opinion on it. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, um, any tips or advice that you want to give to people that maybe start thinking about technology with a lot of fear and that they may want to, you know, see if they can change their mind. Uh, I guess the, maybe the last point I'd make is I, I think often the technology sector and, and tech companies and, um, you know, just that whole you know, Silicon Valley, it's thought of as, it's not your neighbors, it's not your friends, it's not your family who's working there, even if it is, it's this, this kind of uh, remote other force. And it's, you know, I think a lot of people have tried to characterize it as something, um, harmful and, and negative but more than that just something that's outside of the rest of you know our community and i think that's really unhelpful i think you know we remember that you know these are the same people that you know, you know would work at any other business and uh, work at the grocery store or the post office or whatever you know they're they're part of our community it's not an us versus them you know and you know, i've never really had conversations with technologists whether they're at a company or open source or government who isn't, you know, trying to listen to their users and, and make things better for them. And so I think, you know, the, the point there is, you know, instead of looking at it as an us versus them problem, it's, it's really about, you know, a, a community problem. How do, we, how do we solve these problems together? And I think, you know, if we take that perspective, it's less about cracking down on this, you know, you know the, the big bad uh, wolf that's out there and, and more about, you know, just kind of working hand in hand with our community to, to build a better future, which is what technology and progress should really be all about. Right. I, I totally agree with that. And to be part of it. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you want to criticize it, do criticize it with the intention to to help everybody else to make it to make it better. I, I, I love that perspective. Well, Daniel, I, thank you so much for this time and for writing that article that inspired this conversation. I hope people can read it. There'll be a link to that article and to your social media so they can get in touch with you if they want to for the to the Information and Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF. And uh, 
stay tuned. If you have comments, question for us, put it in the in the social media. Don't be afraid. We're, they're not gonna bite. It's a, it's okay. It's okay. Don't be afraid. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks again, Daniel. Thanks, Mark. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.